We're talking about prayer, right? Last week we talked about prayers of anticipation. This week we're talking about prayer of pursuit. What's a prayer? Get, get basic. What's prayer? When you talk to God, right? Talking, or maybe I want to even broaden it out and say communicating to God. Now, not all communication is actually words. Wouldn't you agree? Last night at dinner, Shelby made one of our daughters, I won't tell you which one, to save the name of the guilty, but uh, to protect the guilty. Body language spoke volumes. As Shelby said, you must eat your salad, you know? You just, it's like, you know, they just slide a little further under the table and farther away from the cabbage. You can just see it. The kid just kind of communicates with everything about their spine and says, I don't want to eat this green stuff or this white stuff or whatever it might be. You've seen that. So communication can actually be broader than just speaking. In fact, a lot of communication is unintentional. Now, Todd... Todd's talking, but I'm going to throw him under the bus, and you need to, he needs to see it coming. We were in a church board meeting, and I saw Jen volunteer for this position in our church. She said, I will do this, and Todd's head went like that. Now, it was just a twitch, you know? It was just a twitch, but everybody in the room knew that Todd had just said, no, <laughs> no, Right? And so communication, it takes all sorts of forms. And this morning we need to talk about how we communicate with God. And frankly, not just the words that we speak to God are heard by God. God hears everything we do. He sees everything we do. He understands our thoughts. And so if we're looking for how we communicate with God, and we're going to call prayer communication, and we're going to call communication prayer, then we have to be open to the thought that everything we do is a prayer. There are no exceptions. Actions, words, thoughts, anything you do, immediate responses, the knee-jerk reactions of your life are immensely important as far as God is concerned. Shelby and I have this thing that it's, it's a small drama that plays out pretty much every Sunday in our lives, okay? And Shelby does me a favor by this drama. I promise you that this is where I am not an adequate husband, and she helps me to be by doing this. And that's that I feed the kids. I'm downstairs. I'm feeding them eggs. And she's upstairs getting dressed and getting ready for church, and she comes down the staircase. And there is this moment when I have to notice whatever it is that she looks like, okay? In fact, it comes, she comes down the stairs, and she gets to, like, the third step, and it is always there, and she hesitates. And she doesn't hesitate because she's vain. She, doesn't, she knows that I need to comment. And without that small, subtle signal of her hesitating, I don't. I forget. I blow it. You know what I'm saying? And she sits there on the third step long enough for me to go, oh my, you look amazing. That outfit, it is. And, and frankly, I have to change the words every week. You know, I get out a thesaurus or thesaurus.com and I check it and I'm like, okay, amazing, astounding, startling, shocking. Not shocking, that's not good. And I go through this thing because truly I am, I'm learning to be a husband still. You know, we're only nine years into this thing. Um, but Shelby hesitates for me and there, there is this moment when, you know, if I hesitate in response, I am lost, as the proverb says, Right? Because communication is important, and how I respond means everything to her. And it actually builds her up on a day when she needs confidence. It actually, we, this is the job of husbands and wives, to respond to each other and to give positive feedback. Once I said, Shelby, you look good, 
and it just didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? You could feel it. And the next moment, I was like, I wish it could be Monday already. And uh, anyway, but she does me a favor with it. I, I, I have to tell you that she does me a favor, because otherwise, I wouldn't notice these small moments in marriage life, and they are absolutely small in time, but huge in consequences. When you're looking at Matthew chapter 2, you have to realize that there are three characters, three sets of characters, who are all going to respond to the birth of Jesus. And how they respond is actually prayer. They are communicating to God. God is watching, and he knows how they are communicating. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in their actions. He knows what's in their words. He knows, as he does with us. And so as you walk through this passage, what we're looking for is the responses to God. And they are not necessarily going to be expected. They're going to be unexpected responses. And what's more is they're not all going to be positive. If you can pray to God and say things, you can pray wrongly. You can communicate to God wrongly. Wouldn't you agree? And so when you look at this passage, you're going to see that there are these three different groups of people. Now, the first one, I'm just going to read you, pick up the passage and read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In fact, I'll keep reading. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. That's it. There are three sets of people just in those four verses, and I need to write them on the board for you so we keep them all straight this morning, but you'll see that these three groups, they actually define this passage. The first one, the first one I'll just call the temple, but they are what Matthew calls the scribes and the high priests. The second is actually the government. The government's there. I'll shorten it to that. And what's the government's name? Herod, right? Only one of you said Herod. Does everybody else agree? Monarchy. Monarchy, all right, Herod. Herod the Great. And then there's this third group, and I'll call it affectionately the pagans. And they're symbolized by the Magi. And we'll talk about why that is. I love the term pagan. My dad used to, my dad periodically when we're at home for family gatherings, he refers to my kids as pagans, you know, because he starts praying before dinner and one of my kids will start talking because my, my dad prays in a weird way and sometimes he prays quite long. And one of the kids will lean over to Shelby and be like, Mom, is he going to stop? You know, and then my dad, he says, amen. He said, okay, which pagan said that, you know? And he makes a big joke out of it. And my kids always ask me, what's a pagan? And I say, not you, just don't worry about it. Anyway, but the, the Magi really are pagans. Pagans, It's really important. Um, so here's what we got to talk about. The temple, how did the scribes and high priests respond to Jesus? And this passage tells us with a single word that all Jerusalem, Herod and all Jerusalem, they're troubled. They're troubled. Why would the high priests and scribes, the people who are in the temple in Jerusalem, why would they be troubled? And I need to tell you that it's because these, these magi show up and they use a specific word. They say, where is the king of the Jews? And Tim read you a passage from Chronicles chapter 29. And the interesting thing about that is no matter how many times you read Chronicles or Kings or any of the Old Testament passages that have to do with royalty, nobody ever refers to themselves as a king of the Jews. 
In fact, the term Jew is a later word. It develops quite late, much later than Chronicles. And so the term Jew actually symbolizes something else. And a hundred years before Jesus is born, these guys have a priest beforehand. And not just a priest, he decides he's going to take for himself this title. He says, my name is now going to be, I'm the king of the Jews. And when the Romans conquer Jerusalem, what they do is they take over the kingship from this king of the Jews and they say, we're going to make a new king of the Jews. Jews. And they actually sell to the highest bidder. And do you know who they sold to? Not, not everybody at once, but it's on the board already. Herod. Herod actually buys the kingship from the Romans. And so this group of people, the people in the temple, the high priest, thinks he's the king of the Jews, but he's been wrongfully displaced because this guy thinks he's the king of the Jews. Do you follow? The Romans decided he should do this. Now, the interesting thing about these guys is they're the religious leaders who were supposed to be in power. They're the religious establishment. They're the people who housed the temple, took care of all of the different furniture in the temple, promoted the sacrifices and executed them, did all of the work of religious Judaism. They were the people who were in charge of the church of their day. They were the people who were responsible for God worship in their time. And yet they're the people who missed the boat. And when Jesus appears and the Magi say, where is this king of the Jews? Well, they say, we're troubled, we're bothered, we're not happy about this. We'll discuss this a little bit more later. What do we know about Herod? How many of you have, anybody Wikipedia Herod? You know, this appears every year in the Christmas story. Do you ever get interested about these guys? Who's Herod? I've told you a little bit. What more do we need to know? Nobody's volunteering this morning. He's insecure. How do we know he's insecure? Herod kills so many people. He's one of the worst tyrants in history. In fact, he goes so far as to kill two of his sons, his favorite wife, probably his son-in-law, and maybe an uncle. Okay, he just goes through it various times, and if anybody looks like they're interested in being a king of the Jews, being a king in Israel, well, then he absolutely just says, off with their head. At one point, he actually has his son, one of his oldest sons, placed in prison, and he puts him in a foreign town. And he says, listen, guys, to his closest advisors, I'm going to stage my own death. I'm going to stage my own death. And when I stage my own death, one of these counselors is going to be there, and they're going to watch my son's face. And you're going to show up, and you're going to say, hey, Herod died. And depending on what his son's face showed, he was going to say, I'm going to kill him, because that's going to either make sure that we know he's either a good guy or a bad guy as far as Herod's concerned. So they do this. They, they do the whole plan. And Herod actually fakes his own death, and his son finds out about it, and, and his friend's sitting there looking at his face, and Herod's son actually weeps. He cries. He's sad to see his, his dad die. And you know what? His dad kills him anyway. Even though he's sorry to see his own dad die, he's like, well, he still might have wanted to be king. I'll just kill him anyway. And that's the sort of guy Herod was. From Jerusalem south to the east side of the the Dead Sea, if you looked on a map, there are still ruins of, of these palaces that Herod built. And the reason why he built these palaces is that they were fortresses, and if somebody attacked Jerusalem, he could run to the first palace and hide there. And if they started to attack that one, 10 miles down the road, he could run to another one. And he could go all the way across the land till he got out of Israel, just going to his own houses. And the whole reason is they weren't resort communities. He was just that paranoid. He was that afraid. He was that power-hungry that people hated him so much. He expected that sooner or later there would be an insurrection and he would be kicked out of office. 
This is an endearing figure, wouldn't you agree? Interestingly, he's the guy who built the great temple in Jerusalem. He's the guy who funded the whole thing. Anyway, Herod is afraid, and so we might write words on here. What's his response to the new king of the Jews being born? He's afraid. What's these guys' response? Well, they're troubled, and frankly, they're kind of like academically interested, but not personally interested. They actually quote the scriptures and remind us of Micah 5.2, and they tell the Magi where you can find this little baby who's to be born king of the Jews. They say you can find him in Bethlehem, but interestingly, they don't go there. Now we got this last group, the Magi, and they're the pagans, okay? And I love this because you would have expected that these people at the temple would have been the ones who recognized the new Messiah being born. These were the ones who should have expected, who should have been worshiping. This one says he's going to worship, believe it or not. In the passage, if you watch closely, he says, tell me so I can come worship him myself. But the Magi are the only ones who actually get there and actually do worship. What do we know about the Magi? They studied the stars. Now, I want to, you don't want to answer this question, okay? But you know that in church and frankly myself, I believe this, horoscopes are a bad idea, right? Astrology is a bad idea. It's actually cultic. It's actually got roots in this mystic, demonic history, and it's a bad idea, okay? But the fact is that these guys, the Magi, were actually astrologers. They were the astrologers of their day, and they had pursued this whole pagan religion thing for a long time. In fact, they were part of a religion, uh, a cult called Zoroastrianism, where they actually tried to discern what was going on in the world ahead of time, and they were thought to be the wise men. Now, the Bible has these guys in Daniel, and they have these guys in Acts, and they use this word a couple other places, and I'll tell you, it's never a good thing. Anytime the Bible refers to somebody as a magi, it actually means black magic, evil and has to do with Satan. Okay, There is no place where this is ever a good thing besides this passage in the New Testament, besides the Jesus story. And you know what I thought about when I was looking at this passage? There's this, there's this section, there's this section in, in the New Testament at the end of Jesus' life where he's headed towards Jerusalem and he says, you know, if you don't worship, if you don't praise, if you don't look and turn to me, the Son of God, I want you to know that God can make the rocks cry out, right? Do you remember that passage? God can even make the rocks cry out. And it's, it, mean, it sounds to me like on the left hand we have these people who are involved in the temple and they should have been worshiping, but they didn't. And we have these people over here and they should have been worshiping, but they didn't. And then we have these people and they should not have been worshiping, but they did. The Bible has story after story like this. Remember the woman of ill repute. And I hope you can follow my colloquial language. Do you know what that means? Some of you are laughing. Others of you are not. She was a prostitute. Okay, there you go. It's out for you. And she actually comes to Jesus just towards the end of his life and washes his feet with her hair. And she worships him. And people are just offended with the fact that he did this or that he allows this. But the truth of the matter is she's a worshiper. And like the pagan magi before her, she is somebody who's blown it with God. And so she's a great worshiper of God. Sometimes the people who prayerfully respond the right way to God are the least likely people. Wouldn't you agree after reading the story? So what are the response prayers? What do the people in the temple in Jerusalem do in response to Jesus being born? Let's just think about this. Last week you heard about Anna and and, uh, Simeon. 
these two people who were really big saints. I mean, they were people who had read the scriptures and they had been waiting day after day for Jesus to appear in the temple in Jerusalem. And on the eighth day when Jesus actually appears, they are there ready. Did you catch that? Simeon is actually there and grabs the baby out of Mary's hands and says, listen, let me worship him. Tim tells you, told you all about that last week. Somebody did get it. There were people in Jerusalem expecting this little baby's birth. And what's more is that passage tells us that Anna goes out and tells everybody she can think of that Jesus has been born. What's more is we have the shepherds, and they saw this great starry host in the sky, and they were all enamored with it. And so they went around, and the Bible tells us they told other people. Now here's the thing. How many, how many years do you think it took these pagan mag- magi to get to Jerusalem? I'll tell you, when Herod decides to kill the babies to get rid of Jesus, and that's the end of the story, when he decides to kill the babies, he kills babies two years old and younger. I looked this up this past week. The Magi probably traveled between 8 and 900 miles. 8 and 900 miles on camel or horseback or whatever it was they did, walked. And they traveled 8 to 900 miles to get to see this new baby Jesus, right? It took them a couple years, and so Jesus is probably two years old. So it's a couple years down the road when the, when Simeon and, since when Simeon and Anna have recognized Jesus, since when the shepherds saw Jesus, we're two years down the road that these magi show up. And in two years, these people in the temple have never made it the six miles to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is six miles away from Jerusalem, the Magi's home base is eight to 900 miles away from Jerusalem. And in two years of living there, these guys have never actually crossed over and made it to worship their new king. And it's not as though they didn't know about it. With the shepherds shouting and Anna telling everyone, could it be that they somehow missed the Messiah's birth? I don't think so. So what would you say their prayerful response to Jesus was? What word would we put on that? There's no correct answer. Just shout it out. Worried? Indifferent? Complacent? Disinterested? People who looked at Christ and said, well, he doesn't fit within our religious system, so we're just going to let him go. We're just going to let him go. We're not going to actually pay attention. We're not going to focus. We're not going to actually take a half day and travel to Bethlehem, that's just too long. Half a day for a newborn baby king where the Son of God actually comes to earth as a man. Now, they might not have known all that, but they missed the moment. And you can agree with me that their prayerful response is merely that of disinterest or complacency. So we can just put that out there as a prayer. And you know, the Bible is full of prayers, and we want to talk all about prayer, and we want to say, okay, become real prayers, people who are good prayers, and this is definitely how not to do it. Wouldn't you agree? When God shows up in your life and says, can I do something unique in your life? Can I ask you to trust me for a kid who's going through a particularly hard time? Or when you have a moment where your marriage hits a rough spot and you have to trust God beyond your spouse. You have to look beyond the person who you spend every day of your life with and the only person there is the living God. When you somehow go through a moment when you start to question whether you're going to be able to keep your job or when you actually lose it, who do you trust? And in those moments, if we, if we have a complacent religion where we've complacently referred to Christ and thought of him as just somebody who is relegated to church, what's the chances of our faith actually making it? 
The truth of the matter is this is no relationship with Jesus at all if we're people who have that sort of prayerful response. When God shows up in an unemployment moment, what we're supposed to do is look at him with deep trust and searching and seeking and honest prayer. Frankly, tell him the truth, but don't leave him untouched. Don't leave him left behind. Don't leave him out in the cold six miles away going, it's too far to travel. And that's what the people in the temple in Jerusalem do. And frankly, that's very easy to do in a church. Wouldn't you agree? The temperature is right around 71 degrees in here this morning. It's cold outside, but it's nice inside. A lot of Christmas colors in the crowd. Some of you have sparkly outfits on. There's Christmas lights up here. It's, you know, we're all headed towards where our kids are going to get gifts for Christmas. It feels nice. And frankly, all that niceness can cover up the fact that it's very easy to leave Jesus out in the cold. It's very easy to forget that this is a worshipful holiday, not just a family celebration. Tim told you last week that there are a group of people out there who are hurting, and every year at Christmas, they are battered by Christmas rather than blessed by it. You know why that is? Is because they don't have what it takes to be worshipers of Jesus, or they've hurt somebody, and the church has decided not to worship Christ and not to bless him, and the church is out there doing the celebratory thing, but never actually taking the life of Jesus and handing it to a person who is in deep need. And so this left side of the column, the complacent prayer, well, that's really easy, but there's actually another one. This government, Herod actually, Herod actually does get, I won't write my word, Herod does actually does get to Bethlehem and he gets there just after the Magi leave and he gets there with a hundred or more soldiers trying to kill every baby in the town because he's decided that he believes in Jesus. You know, when we come to believe in Christ, it's really interesting. It doesn't just mean that we've submitted our lives to him, right? You can believe in Jesus. You know, Satan believes in Jesus. You ever hear that? Satan is a believer in Jesus. There's no, he knows too much to not be a believer in Jesus. The question is, have we decided to submit to Jesus? Believing in Jesus, believing in God won't get you very far, and I'll tell you why. Herod is a tremendous believer of Jesus. He's terrified. The responsiveness of his heart, the prayer that he offers, is just sheer afraidness or terror. And so you see Herod, he goes out and he kills every baby two years old and younger because he says, this baby is too much. This baby is powerful. This baby is real, and he will do amazing things. In fact, the first amazing thing he'll do is kick me out of my throne. Some of us on, on in Advent, some of us when we come to Christmas, our prayerful response to Jesus is, leave me alone. That's the temple prayer. But there's another response, and that's that we get to the place where we see what God wants to do in our lives. We can feel him direct us and lead us in some direction, and we know that we're supposed to do something. We know there's a part of our lives that are walking apart from God, and we decide we'd rather walk that way than follow him. We look him directly in the face, and we fail to take that one step of repentance to actually get to a place where we can turning the whole thing around. And Herod's prayerful response is absolute rebellion, but it's rebellion out of fear. It's rebellion out of terror. It's that I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. What's more is I want to kill him and get him out of here as quickly as possible. I want to just stop for a second because these two groups, I told you, they're six miles away. I, I, I checked it out on a calculator. I brought it with me. You know how far six miles is? It's literally... 31,680 feet. You divide that by three and you get how many yards it is. 10,560 yards. How far has the Eagles offense gone this year? 
Michael Vick plus, what's the, what's the now backup who was the starter? What's that? Cobb, thank you. I'm missing him. They, together they've thrown for 3,000 some yards maybe at this point. Has Shady McCoy gone over 1,000 yards rushing yet? Okay. So we might have gotten a mile with the Eagles offense. Wouldn't you agree? But, but just imagine, against the NFL's best, all these defenses lined up against the Eagles offense. They have passed, thrown, fumbled, kicked, all, done all this stuff. They've actually gotten to the place where they've almost gotten a mile with the Eagles offense. I should have checked it out beforehand. That would have been an interesting stat. Now, if you could get 11 guys to go through defenses throwing a ball for a mile over the course of a season, don't you think in two years you could have made it six miles to see a newborn baby that's actually the Son of God? I mean, just think about this. Last year at Christmas, uh, this Shelby asked for a peculiar Christmas gift. She asked for a, a um, it was this, is this birdhouse. It was a, a gourd shaped out, gourd shaped into a birdhouse with a hole and they hollowed out the inside. And I went from place to place looking for this birdhouse around Pottstown and I could not find it. I ended up down by Phoenixville, which is how far away from here? About six miles. And I came back with this great present. It cost 17 bucks. Don't tell Shelby. And, and, uh, I came back with this $17 present and I drove the six miles one way, so it was 12 miles both ways, and I got, wrapped it and I handed it to her on Christmas Day and, and she, you know, I, I held it out like this, like, here you go, unwrap it. And she, she's like, okay. And I, she grabbed it. No, no, you're going to drop it. What's the matter with you? And she's like, what do you, I haven't even seen what it is yet. Well, be careful. I had to drive six miles to get this present, you know, and it cost 17 bucks. That's ridiculous, right? Six miles is just not that far. You know, 10 years ago, I lived in Phoenixville in downtown, and one week I didn't have a car. And I decided not to call anybody for a ride, ask for help from a friend or anything. I decided to walk. I walked up the Gay Street Bridge all the way to Spring City, came over to 724. I was coming down 724 walking this side of Wawa when one of the guys from our first service stopped and pulled over. And, and actually, where's Robin? Is Robin here? She's, yeah, Robin was with him. This is Robin's dad. And they pulled over on the side of the road, and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to church. <laughs> yeah, but you're on your feet. You know, you got a backpack. And I had to be there in time for Sunday school because I was teaching. And so they said, well, you can't walk to church. I said, well, why can't I walk to church? Well, you just can't. I mean, nobody does that. That's crazy. It's only six miles. It took an hour and a half to accomplish. It wasn't that big a deal. I actually made it to walk to church just because I didn't have a car. And the point is, these complacent and these fearful people, they lived six miles from Christ for two years, and they never got to, his, to the manger. They never got to the place where he was one years old, where he was sleeping in a bed. They never got to visit Mary and Joseph. They never got there. They thought the whole thing would blow over. And once they knew it wouldn't, they responded in different ways. One of them, one set with complacency, like that bill that you don't want to pay, you know, that one that you get and it comes back every month and you're like, maybe if I stuff it in a drawer, I just won't, I, I don't do this, by the way. I just, you know, some people do. Anyway, you stuff it in a drawer and you act like it'll go away. That's what the religious leaders did. But then Herod says, I believe in that bill. I believe in this Jesus. I'm just going to go kill him. And he tries to kill him and that doesn't work either. You know, the only thing that works in this story is the pagans. You know, it's the messed up people at the end. 
The ones who had spent their lives doing black magic and kind of talking to people who probably were dead and looking at the stars trying to search for help rather than from God. And they travel eight to 900 miles. They take what amounts to probably between three and four total years of their life round trip getting to Jesus and worshiping him. And they probably didn't stay. We don't know for sure, but they probably didn't stay a week, you know? It was just to see Jesus. It was just to see Jesus. Jeremiah 29:13, one of my favorite verses, says that we will seek, and you heard it in the reading today, we will seek and we will find God when we seek for him with all of our heart. The fact is that these guys couldn't get the, 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 the tiniest response of submission or interest. They weren't that interested in pursuing God. These guys over here, their prayer is one of absolute pursuit. They put them first in their life, and they were willing to take four years or three years out of their life and travel to find Christ because it was worth it. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Isaiah tells us in chapter 40 that we're supposed to level the hills and fill in the valleys and straighten the road so that God can come into our lives. And one of the questions I have this morning is, what prayer are you supposed to be offering God with your life that's different than the one you're offering? What are you supposed to be offering God in this Advent season? Are you leveling the road in your life, making it easy for God to come in, making it easy for God to show up? Or are you sitting there either complacently acting like Jesus in the knocking that's going on the door of your heart, that he'll just kind of walk away sooner or later? If you let it alone, maybe he'll just go away. You know, this is what happens when the salesmen come to my house. We all run to the backyard and act like we're not there, you know? It doesn't work with Jesus. It just doesn't. Or are you somebody who sat there looking at Christ and said, you know what, I would rather do what I want to do. I'm not willing to give this up, whatever it is. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's bitterness for somebody who hurt you years ago. But you're looking at this Christmas and you're looking at Jesus and you're going, I would rather be mad, angry, hurt. I would rather do this, that. I'd rather do what I want to do with my money. I'd rather do whatever I feel like doing than submit to the living God of the universe. Then there's this third group. Maybe you're somebody who's gotten broken enough. And frankly, maybe, just like the Magi, you don't fit in church. When you look inside your heart and you look around this room, you go, you know what? If the people in this room knew what I really think, feel, what I've really done with my life, they would never want to know me. People come to us regularly as pastors and say, you know what? You'll understand me, but the people of your church won't because I'm a mess, and I've got to tell you about the mess I am. The Bible's replete with characters just like that. The Magi show up, and all of their paganism aside, they worship at the feet of Jesus. They worship at the feet of Jesus. Amazing thought. Eight to nine hundred miles. You know, can you imagine showing up at Christ, at the bedside of Christ and saying, man, I had to travel for six miles, i got to go. In fact, I'm getting a text right now. I'll be back in a minute, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? We live distracted lives. We live lives that are focused all over the map on everything that probably doesn't make any difference. And the one thing that absolutely does make a difference, the Holy Spirit comes to us and asks us to submit, asks us to give our lives, asks us to become people whose whole lives are prayer. One person told me after the first service, it was a great line, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, and frankly, we do. Now when it says that, what it meant was pray obediently, and we don't do that. 
Well, we pray, we communicate to God, and he is watching. And we communicate that we would rather pursue anything other than him. We communicate that we would rather walk right up to him and hit him in the face than listen to him. We communicate all sorts of things rather than the fact that we need to pursue and submit and follow and seek and be anticipatory, expectant about what God wants to do in our life. He shows up at Christmas and he tells us, listen, my baby is still here for you to worship. You don't have to travel 900 miles. You just got to travel across from one side of your heart, which is so hard, to the other side where you actually get soft and broken before the living God. Are we willing to do it? Are we willing to take the necessary parts of our time and give them over to Jesus? Are we willing to read the Word of God even though it's kind of difficult? It's a really tough book. Are we willing to spend time in disciplined prayer so we learn how our whole lives can become actual, honoring, worshipful prayer to God? Join me in prayer.